This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Hi, I'm Imma. I live in Scotland. Hi, I'm Jen and I'm from Canada. Hi, I'm Ola Banji and I'm from Nigeria. Hello, I'm Liki and I live in Paris. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm from Peru. Welcome to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. In our conversations, we share ideas, perspectives, questions, and things we can actually do to make a difference. So don't be shy and join our Carbon Sessions because it's not too late. Hello, my name is Catherine Palmer. I am from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Hello, my name is Brian Tormey, and I am from Garrison, New York. G'day, everyone. I'm Kate Field, and I am from Tasmania, a little town called Copping. Tasmania is part of Australia. It's the little island off the southeast of Australia. Wonderful. I am very excited to be here today with you too, because we all have regenerative farming in common. I'd love to know your backgrounds in regenerative farming. We can start with you, Kate. So my husband and I uh, came to farming in 2012. So we've only been farmers for 10 years. He started out as an ecologist. So he was a scientist. He was working for Macquarie University in Sydney at that time. And he was specifically looking at the ecology of marine vertebrates in the Antarctic and subantarctic. So pretty different from what he's doing now in one sense, but very similar in that it's all about ecology, ecosystems, and how everything interacts with each other in a natural setting. Uh, We were living in Sydney, so that was living with uh, 20% of Australia's population, and it's not a town that's set up for transport and ease of transportation. We weren't really enjoying living in Sydney, and we'd always dreamed one day that we'd have our own farm, but we were also dreaming about having a commercial cheese operation. And uh, it got to 2011 and we're at a turning point in our our lives and our careers and we decided that we would become commercial cheese manufacturers. And, of course, to make cheese, you need to have milk. And so we made a decision that we wanted to ensure quality milk and to have quality milk, we felt that we needed to guarantee the health and the happiness of the animals, which meant that we needed to buy a farm. So we looked in a various few places around Australia as to where we wanted to purchase a farm and we settled back to Tasmania. We'd both been to university here in Tasmania and decided to return. His parents had migrated from the UK to live in Tassie and so we were felt like we were returning home. We found a fabulous patch of land that fulfilled our needs in terms of proximity to the hospital because I also work as an emergency doctor and proximity to the airport in case I couldn't get a job back in Hobart and needed to fly in and out for work. And we looked at the landscape and decided uh, that the best mammal to have for milk production was going to be goats. So we actually chose our livestock for our landscape rather than buying a bit of land and forcing it to do what we wanted it to do. Our value system, our um, ethos is to work with nature and to utilise nature to be able to produce really good high quality food. 
So that's kind of how we got into it, through cheese. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Brian, I'd love to hear about your farm story. How did you get into regenerative agriculture? Sure. Well, so I grew up on a farm, or uh, as we call it, uh, where I grew up in, in Oregon on the west coast of the United States, uh, ranching. And uh, we raised cattle originally. Um, but then at one point, uh, we made the decision. I, don't, I can't say that it, it was quite as thoroughly thought out. Uh, as Kate and Ian's very methodical uh, means of going through a, a, an analysis. But we did, we, we made a decision to shift away from cattle and move into goats. We have uh, approximately 250 acres out in Oregon, on my family farm, and uh, it's, which is about the same size as Kate's farm down in Tasmania. And we've got a herd of uh, just shy of 100 uh, cashmere goats. So they're not focused on dairy production or meat production, but rather fiber production for the same thing that you go buy in the stores, the, the cashmere that we, we all wear. Um, so that was uh, uh, just about 10 years ago. So Kate, I, I feel like we made the, the dive into the world of goats and ruminants in that sense at the same time. Um, and it's been a fun journey for us. They are so much entertainment and joy um, while still doing great things on the landscape, um, and sort of, which I think we're going to dive into and sort of talk about all the great things. And Catherine, you know, we, when we all gathered together, I don't, I don't know that we all realized you also have a history, uh, with, with goats. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So we had a, a regenerative herb farm, uh, for about five years. Unfortunately, our lease was not renewed, so we couldn't keep the farm. Land here is outrageously expensive, and even to lease is beyond the capabilities of most farmers. But for those wonderful five years, we had a, a regenerative herb farm, and our goats were, oh, they were rescues, so they were mostly pets, but they were also fantastic fertilizer providers. They were our lawnmowers. They were our blackberry control. They, they did all these wonderful things for us that uh, help make our farm run smoothly. Honestly, don't think I could have done it without our goats. So we've got three corners of the globe covered here. We've got, you know, the, the East Coast of the United States and North America. We've got the West Coast of North America. We've got Tasmania down near Australia. What a good collection of people. But I want to come back and, and maybe ask a little defining question. Let's talk about the word regenerative. What, is, what does that really mean? Kate, I might hand it over to you. I think regenerative means different things to different people. But for me, regenerative really means that you're regenerating the soil more than anything else. So different people might talk about regenerating a landscape. I think of regenerative farming in particular as regenerating soil. So every time you grow something in soil, you're removing nutrition from the soil, whether that's to grow a carrot or to grow garlic or to grow grass. And regenerative farming for me is a way of farming in which you're putting nutrition, specifically carbon, um, and improving organic soil carbon through your methodology that you utilise on your farm. And so this can be applied to all different farming enterprises. So could you tell us more about how you improve your soil on your farm, Kate? Um, a lot of farmers who will be listening to this and potentially a lot of non-farmers as well might be shaking their heads. But for us, we have a very low input system, which means that we don't have maximal yields. So for us, 
it's grazing lightly so that we don't overgraze. And it, by grazing lightly, what we're doing is ensuring that we don't have areas of bare ground. Bare ground will leak carbon into the atmosphere. So keeping ground covered is really important. Keeping the plants that are in the soil growing in their natural rhythm is also incredibly important. And so uh, if they're constantly being grazed, they'll be struggling to grow. So for us, what we do is we try and rest areas of our farm at different stages of the growth cycle. We're always making sure that there's something in the soil that's growing. So you might have a grass that grows particularly well, like Phalaris, over the winter period when other grasses, particularly annual species, aren't growing very well. And what that means is that while the Phalaris is growing, that plant is harnessing the sun and it's actually creating all the sugars and pumping them into the soil to feed the bacteria and the fungi that are in the soil and that keeps the soil and the soil microbiology alive. When the Phalaris dies back and the other plants are going through their rapid growth phase and harnessing the sun's energy, they start pumping in the carbon sugars and they also start feeding the bacteria. So there's always something growing in our pasture. But we also rest our pasture to allow the plants, once they have been grazed, to recover. And that's really an important part of the cycle. Every time a, a plant is eaten by an animal and it's more important that the leaves are torn rather than cut, for instance, by um, a slasher or a lawnmower. So it's the way the plants have evolved, of course, because they've evolved with ruminants eating them. So the pasture or the plants are, are torn by the tongue and the teeth of the animal. And as the leaves are um, cut, down from the base of the plant, so too are the roots in the soil pruned back by the plant because they've suddenly got all this root mass but they need to actually focus on putting energy now into the leaves. And so what that does is it leaves the roots in the soil um, but it prunes them back as such, which means that there are some dead roots in the soil which go on to improve the organic carbon content of the soil. So this process where you graze more lightly and less frequently has a number of descriptors. It can be referred to as time-managed grazing, holistic grazing, cell grazing, and it's a, really just a form of managing your pastures that can be done. That's great. Um, you know, Kate, I wanted to ask you another question. Some of what you're talking about is essentially helping improve the biomass and the carbon retention in in your soil and your farm in this regenerative farming thing. In listening to your podcast, which, by the way, is excellent. The Curious Farmer had so much fun listening to it. For those of you listening to this one, go check that one out. You get into a term, you and your husband, Ian, I, you know, sort of coined called carbon positive after going through a, a fairly highly analytical, I'm sensing a pattern here in your approach to life, a highly analytical, deep dive, big Excel model process of understanding your own carbon footprint there on your farm and, and determined after a multi-year measurement period that you were creating a carbon positive effect. Can you tell us a little bit about the term and what it means to you and how you use it and your sort of your journey to finding it and, and, and what that means for your farm? 
So in terms of how we, what, what do we mean by carbon positive? What that means is we're having a positive impact on the climate by drawing down more carbon than is emitted. So landowners are in a really, really fantastic position to be able to do more than just cut emissions to zero. We can actually start reversing the effects of carbon emissions in the atmosphere. So for us, what we have managed to do is we've managed to put in a number of different methods in our farm. For instance, we don't use any fertilisers whatsoever. We don't use any lime and on our paddocks. And as a result of that, we're not releasing carbon into the atmosphere with the application of those. Um, and we also have tree stands that we're looking after. We're planting more trees. We use solar on our uh, solar energy and solar hot water on our dairy. And when you combine all of those things, um, and in terms of the carbon accounting, we look at also the um, presumed amount of methane that our ruminants are excreting into the atmosphere. And what we've found is that we've been able to increase the organic soil carbon in our soil enough that we not only are net zero, but in actual fact, we've managed to put more carbon into the soil, suck it out of the, the, the atmosphere, put it into the soil and store it in the soil through our methodology of farming. So on our about 300 acres, what we have worked out is that we can offset the carbon equivalent emissions for 60 average Australian households per annum after we've offset our own carbon emissions from our farming enterprise. So 60 houses isn't a lot, but it's better than 59 and it's better than zero. And what's really important for us is that we're actually having a positive effect while we're producing good quality food in a lifestyle sustainable way, a financial sustainable way, and also incredibly importantly, an environmentally sustainable way. Yeah, that's great. You know, there's uh, next week I have the opportunity to speak with uh, a sort of a somewhat famous sustainability champion named Josh Spodek. And he's famous in part for doing some of what you just spoke to there, uh, Kate, which is like hyper minimizing his impact. And he's been able over the course of the last, I think it's five or so years, been able to keep his annual carbon emissions down to about one ton per year, which is very small. Um, through a whole bunch of things like he only produces one bag of trash a year. Like I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to find out next week how he does that. I don't know how he does that. But as you said, that only gets it down near zero. It's not actually, he's not making an impact for one other family, five other families, 59, 60 other families. So that's, that's really great. And do you feel like that methodology is something, go for it. Oh, I was I was going to say, I think this is something that all land ho owners have to recognise is that if you own land, and I'm, I'm thinking more specifically around farmland or forest land, bushland, we would call it in Australia, that you have a great opportunity that no one else has. One of the... Um, one of the things that I've seen, which isn't necessarily a great thing, is that big companies 
uh, like Microsoft, for instance, and have also realised this. But, but what that is doing is um, what Catherine's experiencing in terms of her ability to access farmland is that they're now buying up large agricultural land masses and then they're turning it into some kind of forest uh, to be able to grow fast-growing trees that suck out lots of carbon so that they can offset their emissions from their other activities. And un the unfortunate problem with that is twofold. One, it's driving up the price of agricultural land for the normal person like me, like Catherine, like you, Brian. And so it's making harder and harder for younger people to get into agriculture. The second thing is it's doing is it's creating a, a food desert because if you're planting trees that are only going to be harvested after 25 years, you're not able to produce food. So it's having an influence on food security as well. So there are some problems and some opportunities that people with lots of money or organisations with lots of money have, have taken. But we need to be mindful as consumers and as farmers that we have a great opportunity here as well and that we need to absolutely and totally and utterly ensure that farmland stays with farmers who can farm for food. With our growing population, we're going to need to feed ourselves. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. It's probably one of the biggest problems that farmers face today is finding land. And it's it's a struggle. It's, it's so disheartening that there are people who want to do this and they can't because they just can't find the land to do it on. Um, I, I love that you have created this carbon positive, Kate. It, it makes it sound so... Uh, empowering that you know a farmer can not only provide food for people but we also have this ability to you know help with climate change in in a way that's you know 60 60 doesn't sound like a lot but it when you add up all the regenerative farms that's a lot of carbon that's being sequestered um uh, on the other side though there are a lot of people who are critics of regenerative farming for many reasons. Um, they people say that you know it's it'll never be enough to feed the planet. Um, there's not enough regenerative farms to make any impact into to drawing down carbon. Um, what do you say to this, Brian? We'll start with you. Um, sure. I mean, I I think it's a great question, and I think it comes down in in part to to scale. And the bigger, the bigger the problem in front of us, the more you have to think about how you scale the solution that you need to get to. Um, and I think, you know, we're, my personal opinion, I think we're staring in the face of a, a fairly large problem as we look at sort of our carbon cycle and, and the amount of, you know, impact that is being created every day through so many different methodologies that are creating an impact. We can be doing the little things and we need to be doing some of the big things too to be changing that. And some of that is, as we've just talked about, I think reducing the the impact, right? So bringing our, our footprints down as well as having ways. And and I, I go back to, you know, the, the carbon almanac itself. And I would actually look at the the subtitle, right? The carbon almanac, it's not too late is the subtitle on the book, right? And 
I think that, you know, this term carbon positive, like it's not too late. We all, if we all do some of these small to medium things and we go help affect change that helps reduce those big things, right? So, um, and I know this is a podcast, so people can't see my hands per se, but just imagine like there's these big chunky blocks stacking up on one side. And if we can slow down the stack of blocks and at the same time start to speed up, occasionally people or governments can help take big blocks off the pile. But if everyone also can just pull little slivers of wood out, and if we can do a lot of that, those help too. And some of it, I think, comes back to the ethos and the sense and a feeling that you are making a difference because it leads you to make other changes in your life and to speak about it and have conversations like we're having today and just start to change the broader ethos. And so even if we sort of go with some of the critical perspectives that regenerative farming alone can't solve it, I, fine, but it's one move in the right direction. It helps spur a way of life that's beautiful and wholesome and helps inspire other people to make other changes that those changes all start to snowball. So. I say, even if you go with the critical perspective, it's still a good thing. Well, I can't agree more with Brian. I mean, we're roughly two little farms that are about the same size on other sides of the world. But I know that I've got a whole lot of other farms around me in Tasmania that are also farming regeneratively, who may or may not be carbon positive, but are doing a whole lot of work in order to try and get there. And what I know from this is that while I can't scale my 300 acres to 300,000 acres, the summative effect of all of us becoming carbon positive is going to have a much bigger impact. But one person has to start and one person has to speak about it and one person has to inspire others. And hopefully that is what we're doing uh, through our enterprise um, while making it also a, you know, a sustainable business because it still has to be a sustainable business because if it's not a sustainable financial business, then we're going to fold and then someone else might come in and decide to plant just trees, which will have an effect for 25 years but won't have necessarily an ongoing effect and will lead to further food insecurity in our region. So the scaling effect doesn't have to be one person scaling up the summative effect of scaling also needs to be considered. And I think that's really, really important that we talk about that as well. I think the word regenerative itself is quite a divisive word. I'm not sure if it's divisive outside of Australia, but it certainly is very divisive in Australia because if you're not uh, identifying with the label regenerative as a farmer, ergo are you degenerative and if you're degenerative that makes you a bad person doesn't it is the thinking that we see and so I am trying really hard to move away from the the label of regenerative farmer I'm trying to think more about how we can uh, being a climate positive farmer for instance or a carbon positive farmer as in I associate the word positive with good and negative with bad. How you decide to do your maths is up to you. Um, but, you know, or, or even just being called a carbon farmer. So, you know, that's essentially what we do. We're, we're solar farmers. We, we harvest the sun's energy. That's essentially what we do as farmers, regardless of what farming enterprise you were in. So I think we need to have a conversation about how we can bring everyone along with us, even the more conservative, potentially old-fashioned 
uh, thinking. There are lots and lots of people out there who are uh, implementing regenerative farming principles but don't identify with the re word regenerative and it actually creates problems for us. They get their hackles up, they don't want to engage in conversation. So I've stopped talking about being a regenerative farmer and started talking about being a climate positive farmer. And I think um, that simple reframe is actually really useful for bringing people along with us on the journey who are, you know, turned off by the idea of being not regenerative, therefore degenerative. It's unfortunate that language tends to get uh, messed up that way. I mean, it's happened with the word sustainability. That doesn't mean anything anymore. Even eco, you know, those words lose their meaning as they start to become adopted by people who don't use them in the correct way. It's unfortunate, but regenerative that um, that's happening with that word because there's so much more to regenerative agriculture than just the carbon. There's so many benefits to the planet of doing regenerative agriculture beyond the climate part. I mean, water saving, the, the amount of water that a regenerative farm uses is a fraction of what a conventional farm uses. You know, the inputs. I mean, we didn't allow a single pesticide or herbicide to even come anywhere near our farm. And we grew beautiful plants that, you know, we had other ways of taking care of pests. And in fact, because we were regenerative, we didn't have pests, a lot of pest problems. So it is unfortunate that the word has taken on a, a different meaning from its original intention of being a way of farming that is regenerative, it, it, life building. It's, it's such a positive word, isn't it? Yes, uh, yes. But language matters. And yes, it it really it really matters, and that word can create offence because if you come onto some land and you say, "and now I'm farming regeneratively," what does that mean about the person who farmed before? So we bought our farm ten years ago, and the previous farmer didn't introduce chemicals, had put superphosphate on it once in twenty years, about twenty years prior and realized it didn't really make a difference and he'd essentially just um, opened up all the gates and run his cattle and used it as an existing property and so he'd actually built up heaps of soil carbon through his practice of very low input low maintenance and so we inherited or we became the stewards of this patch of land while he hadn't farmed regeneratively he had um, he had regenerated uh, bare patches of soil and he'd managed blackberries with goats as well. And, you know, there was a, a whole lot that he'd done, but he would never have identified as a regenerative farmer. But he certainly wasn't a degenerative farmer. Right. It, it's interesting uh, that we're having this conversation. I, I hadn't really thought about this in a long time, but I remember being, as a young boy, talking with my mom. We went to the grocery store, and at the time, we were raising beef and timber on our property. Um, and for us, I'm, a, I'm fourth generation on, on the land, on the, on the same property. And they've been doing raising many different crops and things over the, over the generations and the years. And I remember this conversation, we were driving home from the store, we'd gone and we'd bought 
some beef at the store or or been in the store. I don't think we bought any, but there were these signs and we looked at the prices of beef and there were signs on some of them labeled organic and pasture fed. And there were the, these were new things. This was, you know, 20 something years ago. And it was new, this idea of labeling this beef uh, as organic or grass fed. And my mom was sort of, you know, frustrated almost by this idea that this stuff that was store bought, probably raised on a feedlot, you know, it was not uh, likely, it wasn't very ethically raised, it wasn't very humanely raised, it probably, maybe it was technically organic, or maybe it was technically grass fed, but it probably was not a fairly happy steer. Um, and yet here we were raising animals who like, they came across the fields when we called their name, like they loved their life until the moment that they were killed. But it was, they, they literally came to their names, they were our pets, they loved, they had this expansive, huge property. But we couldn't use the term organic or grass fed because we hadn't gone through any type of certification process and didn't have the funds or money to go do that. And it's interesting, Kate, because as you just told that story and our and Catherine were talking about that word and its multiple purpose, I can picture and feel my mother and myself sort of being on the other side of that and being like, but we've been doing it in this organic and grass fed no no chemicals, no hormones ever, like not, nothing other than grass and sunshine and love, you know, and hay from our own fields. Like, and, but we didn't have those terms and we weren't using them. And so all of a sudden other people were, and it made us, there was like, we were like, but what have we been doing the whole time? You know? And so it's interesting that to think about it, and I, I really hadn't thought about it in that way until, until you told that story. It, it is a really beautiful story and it's um, it speaks to me very closely because all certification, whether that's organic or if there does become a regenerative certifier agency going forward, or, or all that is doing is creating a marketing opportunity really where the farmer doesn't actually have a relationship with the consumer. And that's part of the problem with our global food system and our long supply chains. And we saw how vulnerable that system was during the global pandemic in 2020, 2021. It might not have been as vulnerable for you guys in the Northern Hemisphere as it was for us in the Southern Hemisphere. But what we found, and particularly in Tasmania, where we actually import, we export a lot of our food to mainland Australia where it's repackaged and then brought back over. And we really only have a three-day supply of food on the island at any one time. So when one warehouse went down in Australia with COVID, there were just empty shelves after three days in all our supermarkets, which scared quite a few people didn't worry me so much because I live on a farm <laughs> but it it's um, it really impressed upon us how fragile and vulnerable those long food supply chains are to any kind of disruption and what I see is that certification is a way of trying to reassure the consumer that what they're eating is either ethical or organic or sustainable as opposed to the short chain uh, the short food supply chains that we have with our consumers where they buy it from the farmer's market directly from us and they can see the farm. If we put, Sometimes they can even see the animals walking in the paddock. They get to know us. They can ask us questions. Do we use any kind of chemicals? My response is, what do you mean by a chemical? We have to wash our dairy plant that uses an acid and an alkali. They're chemicals, but they're organic chemicals. Um, yes, we have 
gorse, which is a noxious weed in Australia. So we cut that and we dabbed the stem. Um, so, yes, we're using a chemical for that, but that's not a chemical. That's just copper. That's not going to be a problem in our copper deficient soils and also for wildlife, for instance. So by having a direct relationship with our consumers, we've elected not to become an organic certified farm. We've not elected to go down any kind of certification route because if people genuinely want to know about how we produce our products, then we invite them to come to the farm or to have a conversation with us. And I think that's that's really important as well, is that should we be using proxies? I think we're going to have to, you know, if you live in New York City, you live with millions of other people, you can't necessarily have a direct relationship with a supplier. And if you eat out every other night, you know, you're just going to eat the food that is served to you by, by the restaurant. So um, I think there is a role for certification, but I also think there is a role for individuals to learn about where they're sourcing their food from and having those conversations with the farmers and choosing to support those individuals who are farming in a way that aligns with their own values. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think the certification um, as the way I see it is more for the large corporations to be able to show that they're doing something, which is good. I mean, I would much rather that General Mills became uh, regenerative than that they practice conventional. So I think kudos to them for going that route. And if they want to create a certification program, then great for them. It's not going to be accessible to the small farmer. I don't the cost of becoming organic here in British Columbia is insanely expensive. And you have to recertify every so many years, which costs you again. So um, just like Kate said, we, we had regular customers who would come to the farm and see what we did. And getting to know your farmer is getting to be bigger and bigger here. Whereas, whereas it in the past, it wasn't a thing. Now people actually uh, want to know where their food comes from, want to talk to you, want to, to come to the farm and see. So it, I think there is becoming a movement there where it's going beyond just local to, yeah, getting to know where your food actually comes from. Very much so. Well, can I turn our conversation to farts? Because Kate, <laughs> sure. you had a fabulous podcast episode um, with uh, a, a scientist there in, I believe he's uh, there in Tasmania, uh, Matthew Harrison, who has done all this interesting research on essentially methane production. And you and Ian had this great conversation with him regarding helping understand the science of methane production. And I will say I was sort of waiting for you to get into this other layer of topic, um, which is which is this great area of, of still small science, but I was sort of expecting it to show up. Um, there's a fabulous YouTuber um, named David Borlace who has a channel called Just Have a Think. Um, and it's not focused exclusively on carbon and the environment, but broadly speaking, science and things. And, and one of the episodes he had was on that really got me was called Chasing Methane. And it was about the science that's starting to help us understand as ruminants pass methane, right? They pass gas, they fart. That is a thing that happens. But as that happens, when it happens in humid, highly oxygenated air, meaning like over a grassy pasture where all that grass is taking CO2 
and producing, taking, snagging the little carbon atoms and releasing O2, the, the oxygen atoms, that air, when mixed with methane, creates a chemical reaction that captures some of the methane itself out of the air before it rises into the higher atmosphere versus if you're on a feedlot and it's you know dirt or bare ground that that chemical process doesn't happen is that it didn't make the podcast but is that something you and Matthew dug into at all no but it's definitely something i'm still trying to get my head around i've also heard a little bit of interesting stuff around um bacteria that live in the soil surface who who specifically use methane as a form of energy so they absorb the methane and consume it and use that um, to continue to drive their own production um, I, I need to do more research into this and I need to find someone who really is a methane expert Matthew while able to answer some questions uh, looks more at the bigger picture stuff rather than the detail. Um, and he sort of mentioned that a few times in his podcast. That was a couple of years ago now. So, you know, I haven't listened to it for a while. I'm just trying to go go back in my memory to, to recall what exactly we talked about. Uh, but interestingly, the I, I think we need to have a, a <laughs> what is it? I think we just need to have a think about methane and ruminants. Um, there's a lot, uh, Diana Rogers, who is a nutritionist and also a farmer, has written a book, um, It's Not the Cow, It's the How, uh, and um, I think it's actually called Sacred Cow, It's Not the Cow, It's the How, and she's actually looked into and she's got a lot of uh, science backing up her um, her a lot of scientific facts that back, back up her arguments. It's well worth a read. She's also, she's had a look at and a think about um, ruminants and the methane that they produce. Most of the methane actually comes from when they regurgitate their cud uh, and and it's associated with burping rather than farting, although some does come out the back end as well. But one of the things I think we need to put into perspective is the number of ruminants that are on the planet now compared to the number of ruminants that were on the planet before the Industrial Revolution and in the, you know, tens of thousands of years leading up to the Industrial Revolution. Back in the North American plains on the prairies, <coughs> back in the North American plains on the prairies, there were... Um, I guess, pioneers that would be trying to cross the plain and they would have to camp for days to weeks to allow the herd of bison that were migrating through the prairie to go past. Can you imagine how many animals that is? They're constantly moving day and night, grazing as they go, and you have to camp for days to weeks. That is a lot of ruminants. We now have fences and so we don't have... Uh, masses of ruminants traversing across the savannas of the world. But that happened in Australia with our marsupials, with kangaroos, um, although they tend to range. Um, but ruminants are the ones that created the grasslands of the world. And the grasslands are actually um, the world's, the landmass most common actual um, ecosystem. 
when you look at the entire world. So ruminants have been incredibly important and incredibly numerous. We've done a fantastic job of removing their habitat by building houses, by um, monocropping wheat, for instance, by monocropping soy, um, by, uh, you know, saying this is my parcel of land and here are my fences and I'm going to farm within it or I'm going to live within it. And what we've essentially done is actually haven't necessarily changed, although I can't find any facts and I'm not sure that this would be possible to even fact check, but to ascertain what was the population of ruminants on the planet, say, 3,000 years ago compared to what is the population of ruminants on the planet today. And I'm not convinced that they're very different numbers. It's just that we have fewer species, we've got a more domesticated livestock and fewer wild ruminants roaming the planet. And so when you think about that, that means that the amount of methane that was produced thousands of years ago from ruminants is going to be equivalent to the amount of methane that is produced today from our ruminant species on the planet. I don't think methane produced by ruminants is the big issue driving climate change that seems to be what everyone is talking about. It's being talked about in New Zealand as they consider introducing a methane tax for livestock farmers. I know it's being discussed in Europe at the moment with the concept of having a red meat tax to try and reduce the reliance of the population on red meat. Um, and so by reducing the market pressure, uh, farmers will destock naturally, which will lead to reduced methane emissions. The majority of methane that is being produced in the world is actually coming from the burning of fossil fuels and industry. And I think it's really interesting that we're not having the conversation about how we can better manage the methane that's produced by industry and fossil fuel organisations. Why aren't we talking about taxing those guys? Why aren't we talking about developing technologies that make them more efficient? Why someone's done an absolutely brilliant marketing diversion, getting people to focus on methane coming from ruminants when ruminants are able to actually provide us with really important forms of nutrition and I just it just makes my mind boggle why are we so focused on ruminants and methane when really what we need to be focusing on is methane from other sources and I think it comes back to what you were saying Brian perhaps it's a way of individuals feeling that they can contribute by changing my diet I can help the planet but unfortunately, I don't actually think that's true. I think having a 100% plant-based diet is actually causing major issues. I think it causes issues because people end up eating a lot more processed food. And we know that processed food has a high carbon cost to it. If all you're eating is vegetables from the local farmer's market where you're buying direct from growers, great. Kudos to you. I think that's brilliant. Um, but that's not the reality of how most people are eating a plant-based diet. I think one of the other things, and I'm sure I'm going to be completely vilified by every 100% vegan out there for these comments, um, and I think if they can do it, that's great. But I also think that we need to consider the health effects, the long-term health effects. The human body has evolved 
to eat animal protein as well as plant nutrition it has we are evolved to be omnivores we don't necessarily need to be eating a lot of animal products but our body does best when we do eat animal products and for a lot of people not all people but for a lot of people when they move to a plant-based diet they end up eating highly processed foods and we know that highly processed or ultra processed foods are associated with poorer health outcomes increased rates of type 2 diabetes. Now, being a doctor and having worked in the front line of the emergency department, I can absolutely assure you that you do not want to have type 2 diabetes. It increases your risk of heart attack, stroke, amputation. It increases your risk of renal failure, of retinal failure, blindness. Can you imagine the carbon cost of having dialysis three days a week because you have renal failure associated with diabetes brought upon by eating an ultra highly processed food diet. This is not necessarily the answer. Sure, we can all eat less red meat. We can all eat less animal protein. I don't have an issue with that at all. We can, but we really need to start thinking about and having conversations about how monocultures are um, actually really damaging in terms of carbon release. We need to have a discussion about how monocultures are affecting habitat for wild animals. We need to have a discussion about the health impacts that processed food is having on um, human nutrition and uh, disease, lifestyle disease. It's, it is a very, very fraught and emotive topic and uh, it will no doubt piss a whole lot of people off that I've even brought this up but I think we just start to need to have the conversation and understand the nonce and not just listen to the vitriol on either side. I think that's well said. Well the good news is I was gonna say the good news is we're we're doing this podcast uh recording and I've got my my uh ear airpods in so my vegan wife didn't hear any of that. Um, but uh, being someone who lives in a household and growing up as a cattle, you know, beef cattle, meat uh, rancher, um, I, I married a vegan and live in a household that, you know, has a vegetarian son and a steak loving daughter. And it's interesting because I think I actually will go back to the, I don't know if it's actually the official subtitle of the Sacred Cow book, but I think you applied a very uh, wonderful tagline to it, which is like, it's not the cow, it's the how. And I think the same thing applies in the topic you just brought up, Kate, which is if you're going to go reduce your meat consumption, how you go do it is so important. And being mindful because you're absolutely right, the, the health effects of eating highly processed foods can be just terrible and devastating. And, and the carbon footprint of those foods, by the way, and the processing that creates them, and the, as you mentioned, the monocultures and that things. And it's challenging to go, and it takes almost a lot of intention to go create a diet that is when you're consuming foods that are principally plant-based that because those plant foods like you need to continuously can buy them right they they spoil quickly and so you need to be continually buying them there's seasonality to it right that is a challenge depending on where in the world you live and, and the seasonality of the of the ecosystem you live in and the local ecosystem and there's a carbon footprint to moving produce from, you know, in our case, South America, flying it up here to North America in our winter, their summer, you know, like there's, 
there's carbon footprints out. So there's all these things you have to take into account. And I think it does come down to, you know, that sort of like moderation is, is a key, uh, you know, rule in everything and paying attention to things like how you go do it matters. It's not just the like, what are you doing? But it's like, how are you doing it? In the same way that I would come back to regenerative farming. Farming and ranching can be bad and it can be good. Depends on how you do it. Um, and so that's where I, I would sort of like weigh in on that. I, I think you're right that there's like all these negative impacts that can come from that. I, I think broadly speaking, you know, if we if we see the whole globe shift to as meat intensive diets as some countries have today, we'll face a really challenge like this. You know, that's where all of a sudden, going back to the, the visual metaphor we were speaking of earlier, like so many more blocks are being added to the stack on that carbon stack, right? That no matter how much your soils are sequestering carbon, like they're not keeping up with with pulling enough blocks, little small blocks out of that pile, if all of a sudden countries that are growing quickly in population and, and wealth are start turning to a more meat intensive, which has such a high carbon intent. But I think it's all about balance. I, th I think you've also touched on something that's really, really important for us to discuss, and that is our global population. And you know, as a farmer, I have so much land and I have a stocking density um, that I can safely run without causing problems to my land. So I can't scale our business um, hugely because if I do that, I'm going to have too many mouths to feed. That's going to end up in bare ground, which is going to leak carbon. There'll be nothing to feed the goats. The goats will get sick. It'll produce rubbish milk. Then we'll produce rubbish cheese, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to be mindful when we have a bit of land what our stocking density is. And I think we start to need to start having a conversation at a population level about managing the stocking density of the planet. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not, not saying anything here about certain people or any anyone being you know sent off the planet or anything that is nothing what I'm saying I'm saying as individuals we need to start thinking about how many children we are going to have in the world and what their carbon footprint is and what is reasonable uh, for individuals to do to you know put forward their genetics I think the conversation in Western countries or industrialised countries is very different from the conversation in developing countries. But I think in developing countries, we also need to consider how can we improve um, basic health, uh, sanitation, access to clean water to ensure that child and infant mortality rates are kept uh, equivalent to what we have in industrialised countries. Um, we need to consider how um, those developing countries um, educate their children so that they can actually utilise their children to uh, have incomes in the future rather than requiring them as labour on their, you know, um, self-sufficient farms. We, we need to have a conversation about stocking density in terms of humans on our planet. And it's a really, really difficult conversation to have, incredibly difficult. And I don't really want to have the conversation myself, but it's something that I just implore all people listening to this to actually think about. And I'm absolutely not advocating anything in particular, but we need to think about 
how religion affects our uh, decisions about family size. We need to think about birth control and how access to birth control and the influence that religion has on access to birth control is affecting world populations as well. It's in government's interests for us to have lots and lots of babies because then those babies will consume more, which creates economic growth. Those babies will, will grow up to have jobs, which means they'll have incomes, which means that they can tax them. And so we can improve our um, revenue generation as a government. So we really need to, it, it, it's incredibly complex. The whole conversation is incredibly complex, but it's also incredibly interesting. But yes, I think we have a stocking density problem on a very large farm called the planet. You know, I'm going to go to something very interesting. So we made on our farm, uh, we made the transition from beef cattle to goats, again, a little bit over a decade or so ago. And in that transition, you know, so we've got about 250 U.S. acres and uh, that footprint allowed us to run so many cattle. You know, we've got a fair amount of that in timber and then we have sort of pastures and things. And, and interestingly, when we sort of like did original early calculations, like the footprint, the head count, as it were, of cattle versus goats was a wildly different number in part because the the method of goats as sort of very, um, you know, uh, to use your phrase, curious grazers, like they're just, they sort of, what they can consume um, and how they consume and what landscapes they can navigate through to get to underbrush and those things. It was a bit more varied than cattle. Um, we could, not that we do have, but we could support an even larger, a much larger herd of goats on our acreage. And I'll liken this back to a wonderful uh, Seth Godin in one of his daily posts sent out a link to a website called footprintnetwork.org, where you can take a test that's a test of your ecological footprint. And it's, a, it's an attempt um, to sort of create a measurement that's more than just your carbon footprint, but sort of like your ecological footprint, a more holistic measure in a few ways. Um, and so I went and, you know, followed the link and did the test. And, and it, what it does is it basically measures and says, okay, if the whole global population lived the way you live, here's how many Earth's worth of resources we would need to be able to house everything, right? And so obviously we only have one Earth. And so we need that number to be one or less. Um, and I think you're right, Kate. I think we've got it's it's not necessarily a numerical density, but it's a depending on how you consume and live and your ecological footprint. If that's high and many people have a high number in that, then we may have a population challenge. And so it's like there's like more than one lever to pull on here. It's not just population. It's how is that population consuming um, or impacting maybe is the better word. Brian, thank you. I think you might have just rescued me from the vitriol of hundreds of thousands of people. Because <laughs> that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Um, if we all consume the way I consume, and I don't think I'm a huge consumer, um, then yeah, we're, we're going to be in trouble. But compare that to someone who's a subsistence farmer in, you know, um, West Africa, um, and, you know, the, pop, the world would be able to potentially support um, a much larger population. Um, we talked about farts. I'd like to talk about poop now. Um, so one of the uh, arguments that I always use when I espouse 
regenerative farming is that if we were to all become vegan, we wouldn't have any fertilizer. We would have to rely on chemical fertilizers because the thing that goats do best in the world and cows and sheep and deer is they make fertilizer. Like they take grass, which we can't really do anything with. And they, through their bodies, turn it into this amazing stuff that lets us grow everything. Um, I, I think maybe goats or maybe sheep might win the prize for having the most nutritious fertilizer, creating the, mo the, the best fertilizer. Um, so what do you say to that, Kate? Um, that argument that, you know, if we were all vegan. I think the, there have been some uh, great stories that have been told. Gabe Brown tells the story in his book From uh, Dirt to Soil about the benefits of manure on his paddocks. So he put in crops that were devastated by weather events um, and he just sort of thought, oh, I'll let the cows in um, because I might as well you know, I'm, I'm, I can't harvest it. And the the cattle eating the what was left of the crops and then um, dropping their manure, trampling that manure into the soil and feeding the biology of the soil resulted in improved crop production. And so uh, if we look back to agriculture in its infancy, we look at what happened uh, I'm thinking of London just prior to the Industrial Revolution um, as well. So there were the uh, there weren't uh, proper toilets in houses. There there were gutters, but you know people would you know poo into a bucket and someone would come along. It was their job to empty out all the as it was called night soil, which I find really interesting. It was referred to as soil. And we refer to people soiling themselves and which is where this comes from as well. And what happened was that that human manure was actually taken back and dug into soil that provided the new nutritious soil to be able to grow market gardens which could then be taken back into the city to feed the people of London so um, without human manure without animal manure our soils would become more and more impoverished as we took more of the nutrition out of the soil to put into plants that we ate without putting anything back so I think um, if we want to move away from fossil fuel based fertilisers, which is essentially uh, what fertilised, chemically produced fertilisers are, um, they originate from fossil fuels, then we need to incorporate animals into our systems. This is how nature has evolved. Nature is the most efficient way. You, if, if it's not going to be efficient, it's not going to work. This is what ecology is, looking at the entire system, and it is so complex. It's more complex than rocket science or, or brain science. It has to be more complex because it has so many moving parts to it. And I think it's really important that we look back to nature to help us to guide our way forward. And that may mean drawing on Indigenous culture and knowledge um, because a lot of that Indigenous knowledge and culture or First Peoples knowledge and culture has come from a position of being part of the ecosystem and observing the ecosystem. So they often have amazing 
uh, understanding and knowledge that we can tap into. But it also means that we need to be great observers as well and we need to be looking at what is working in nature and how can we emulate that, how can we guide that, how, how can we um, utilise those examples to improve our ability to produce food. Removing animals out of a system is definitely not the answer. So, you know, in the classic recycling three-arrow symbol, we've got our three R's, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Uh, and Kate, I, I find it lovely. I learned that you've taken in your cheese making process, which by the way, we haven't talked, cheese is so delicious and important. We haven't talked nearly enough about cheese relative to our discussion of farts and poop. But in that cheese making process, you found a way to reuse some of the byproduct and create a new product that's a saleable, lovely thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I'm assume that most of the listeners have heard of little Miss Muffet who sat on her tuffet eating her curds and whey before along came a big spider who sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. With the cheese making process, you take the milk, you heat the milk to about um, body temperature and then you add culture or you utilise the natural cultures that are already natural bacteria in the environment and the milk already. We in Australia have very strict rules over our milk, so we pasteurise and then we add cultures in. Um, once after pasteurisation, the milk has cooled enough. And then what the, the majority of our goat's cheese that we produce is a lactic set curd. So there are two forms of cheese, essentially, roughly. You can sort of group them into two, two big forms and it's not hard and soft. It's actually lactic set or rennet set. So rennet set is a more traditional hard cheese type setting and that's where you add the rennet into the cultured milk and that causes the coagulation of the milk solids which forms the curd and after that's been allowed to set for long enough you cut the curd and out comes the whey. The whey looks a bit like a slightly yellowish substance that whey is called sweet whey because if you taste it, it isn't sour as opposed to lactic set curd, which is where the bacteria that are or the culture that's added into the milk consume the milk sugars, which is lactose, and in doing so they create an acid, lactic acid. Now we've all felt lactic acid burn in our legs, so we know that it's pretty acidic. That Lactic acid is actually what sets the milk into the curd and then you cut the curd and the whey comes out. If you taste the whey, it tastes sour and that's what we refer to as sour whey. When you have, for us, we have extremely high yields from our milk, particularly at this time of year. It's spring in Australia. Our girls are just having their babies at the moment. I should call them goat kids, but they're babies to me because they're real people I keep calling the goats someone or people as well they all have a name they're all someone <laughs> yes oh yes we get that Catherine and I both understand they all have a name they all have a personality you're you're among friends here my favorite thing to say is all my kids have four legs absolutely yeah yeah Sometimes I'll talk about my kids and I have to clarify to people whether I'm talking about the two-legged or the four-legged kids because <laughs> I have two children of um, my own. 
So at this time of year, we're getting really high yield on our cheese. So one litre of milk will give us 300 grams of cheese, so a 30% yield, which means that you've got 700 grams that is waste. That is the why, essentially. And so there's lots of different things you can do with the why. Most people chuck it away. So we were turning our way into wine, very, very clever. We've got friends around the corner that have a vineyard. They also have some pigs. So we they take the way, feed the pigs, and then exchange some wine in return occasionally. Wasn't as great transactionally for us as it probably was for them, but that's okay. They still take a bit of our way to feed to their pigs. Whey is really, really high in nutrition. It's high in protein. It's got heaps of vitamin A in it. It's got vitamin C in it. It's got retinoic acids. And if anyone knows anything about skin, using retinol in your skin helps keep it young. So it's got heaps of nutrition on it. And all we were doing with it at, for quite a while was feeding it to pigs or chucking it on our paddocks to feed our soil. And we kept looking at this thing going, wow, this is such a waste. This has got so much nutrition in it. It's got so much value. We need to learn to do something with it. And we looked at lots of different alternatives and in the end we settled on skincare. And that was for two reasons. One, I couldn't bear to go through the regulations required to make yet another dairy product, which is what it would be considered, and then having to market yet another food product into an incredibly saturated market. And the other reason we'd settled on skincare products is because cheesemakers have the best skin. When you actually hand make cheese, you've got your hand in the vat and you're jiggling the cheese around. It's called cuddling the cheese, the curd. And there's so much nutrition in the way that actually what happens is that the integrity of the skin is, is really restored, really nourishes skin. And we found this out ourselves over winter when we're not milking our goats they're having a break so we we get on with all the farm jobs like fencing uh, and that just absolutely kills the skin on your hands as you guys would know even if you wear gloves it still gets through and we'd go back to spring go back to making cheese and instantly partly because we weren't fencing but I tell you what there's a lot of hand washing that's involved but the skin on our hands would recover it would repair really quickly and so I was tasked with developing a skincare product that was whey-based. So a couple of years ago, I enrolled in a diploma of organic skincare formulation and started learning about how I could emulsify the whey or water with oil to create skincare products. That was basically um, where I started. And uh, what I've been able to do, and we launched in December 2021, um, a skincare product called Leapful, um, Leap Farm being the name of our farm and Leapful being the brand name that we settled on for our skincare. And so what we're doing is we're taking the waste whey, I'm emulsifying it with expired olive oil that's locally grown and we're using natural um, plant-based um, emulsifying agents to do that. And then I'm adding in some essential oils to uh, partly mask a cheesy smell and partly because the essential oils have amazing properties themselves. And I've created some hand creams and some face cream, and the hand creams I just absolutely am utilising a lot at the moment as my hands get trashed from my long 
arduous days on the farm at this time of year. But I'm getting so much positive feedback for it and a lot of positive feedback from people using the face creams as well. It's a beautiful substrate, the whey. I have no water that's added in. It's just the whey and the olive oil and that's the majority of the product. And people are finding that it really helps restore and nourish their skin. I find that it aids the repair of little micro cuts and abrasions and so on but um, that's not a specific medicinal claim I just find that it works really well on my skin and I I love the smell as well oh that is so awesome we're gonna make sure we put that in the show notes to link back to your your you have an online store oh thank you yes yes and I can ship worldwide I think the shipping fees are included I get someone else to run the back end of the website because I'm just too time poor now to to be able to do it all myself. Awesome. Wow, that is an amazing story. I love that. I love that your farm is so holistic. Holistic, Everything that you do takes into account the whole circle of product and waste and resources. There's another uh, flow-on effect, though, from the skincare is that – I have someone who lives just down the road who's a horticulturalist who has developed an interest in essential oils. And so what he has been doing, we've been working together, but he has been distilling local plants for their essential oils. And we've got this really exciting vision uh, where we actually take – local species of trees and we encourage farmers to plant shelter belts now shelter belts have multiple uh, for those who have non-farming backgrounds they're really really useful things to have on farm they um, provide shelter for stock particularly for sheep that are lambing Um, they also increase water uh, retention in soil of course, because they're trees, they and the, the most active carbon sequestration in trees occurs in the first 20, 25 years of life. So they're, you know, great for storing carbon. Um, the other thing that they do is provide habitat for native birds and other marsupials in Australia. They also provide fodder for bees so that we can ensure that we've got healthy bee populations. So shelter belts have multiple multiple benefits to farms but what we would like to see rolling out is that farmers are putting in some shelter belts with the native trees that we come along and coppice them which is where you cut out the leader stem so that they grow bushies that that they're bushy up close to the ground which provides benefit to the animals of course and um, so we occasionally harvest them we don't kill the the tree uh, in the harvest process we just harvest some of it distill that into essential oils to move back into the skincare products. So then the farmers are able to increase their um, carbon sequestration on farm and all the other benefits that go along with shelter belts and be paid for it because we'd be harvesting um, and so we would pay them for for the plant material that we use for the essential oil. Uh, And they don't... lose huge volumes of land because they're just shelter belts as well so it's just one of these win 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 and then there's you know other enterprises that can scaffold off that whether that's cut flowers for the botanic flower floristry industry whether that's um increased honey for um 
apiarists to be able to put their hives inside the shelter belts where they're protected from the livestock and able to um, get the pollen from the trees. There's just so many opportunities that I see. I just wish I had more time to be able to do all the things. <laughs> I absolutely love that. It, it's I would love to see what you're creating happen everywhere. It's absolutely amazing. It's such a model to to live by. What I would like to say is thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak about what we do. We're just, you know, a small farm at the bottom of the world who are just trying our best and trying to tell people about what we're doing. And so being able to be invited to have a platform to showcase what we do and talk about what we do and why we do it is so important and so valuable. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much for being here. I've learned a lot and it's been absolutely amazing talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Kate. Thank you so much for being here. And Brian, thank you so much for piquing my interest again in ruminant methane and the um, metabolization of it in the atmosphere. I know I need to get back to that. I've just been putting that on hold. <laughs> I've got to get active on it again. You've been listening to Carbon Sessions, a podcast with carbon conversations for every day with everyone from everywhere in the world. We'd love you to join the Carbon Sessions so you too can share your perspectives from wherever you are. This is a great way for our community to learn from your ideas and experiences, connect, and take action. If you want to add your voice to the conversation, go to thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts and sign up to be part of a future episode. This podcast is also part of the Carbon Almanac Network. For more information, to sign up for the emails, to join the movement, and to order your copy of the Carbon Almanac, go to thecarbonalmanac.org. Be sure to subscribe and join us here again, as together we can change the world.